0: Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. This is Henry Lopez. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today is Ivy Walker. Ivy, welcome to the show. Hello, Henry. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is going to be an interesting conversation. I was really did a lot of planning and, and looking forward to Had an opportunity to review Ivy's book. But Let me read a quote from her book that I think sets the tone and uh, the topic that we're going to discuss. Quote, small businesses like yours face a large and growing threat from a number of risks that they are not properly equipped to address. Risks like employee fraud and abuse, cybersecurity threats, workplace violence, and reputational damage are among those that can hit hard and fast. If the business has not put plans in place to counteract these risks, they can result in catastrophic outcomes, end quote. So Ivy Walker is going to share insights and tips on some of these risks and how to counteract or avoid them in our small businesses. To receive more information about the Howa business, including links to the show notes page for this episode, and how you can continue supporting my show and receive exclusive content and discounts through a Patreon membership please visit thehowabusiness.com. Let me tell you a little bit more about Ivy Walker. And I I had to shorten this bio because Ivy's credentials and background are phenomenal as we will explore just a little bit here in the time that I have her. But Ivy Ivy Walker is a serial entrepreneur, an author, a teacher, a business coach, and an award-winning director and executive producer of documentary films. Her most recent book, which we're going to dive into in the topic of this episode, is entitled 12-Minute Risk Management, Strategies and Tools Small Business Owners Need Right Now to Successfully Navigate Today's Business World. As a founder or co-founder, she has launched multiple companies, including Helios Digital Learning, which utilizes digital storytelling to help business professionals and students improve their ethical decision-making, Purpose Workforce Solutions, a staffing firm that's specializing specializes rather, in connecting the aspirations of disconnected youth to job opportunities and Ask CODA, a risk management platform for small businesses. Ivy teaches risk management to entrepreneurs and nonprofit executives as an adjunct professor, adjunct faculty member rather, at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. She also teaches an ethics and leadership course at Northwestern University where she holds an adjunct faculty appointment. She's also the executive producer of the documentary, which I love. we'll have to chat about that briefly, of documentary film, All the Queen's Horses, a film created by Helios Digital Learning as a tool to teach business owners and government officials about the perils of fraud and willful blindness. All the Queen's Horses was the number one documentary in the country when it was released in April 2018. IEB lives... In the Chicago area. Ivy Walker, welcome to the show. Thanks again, Henry. All the Queen's horses. One of my favorites when I was doing the research, I had no idea. I didn't make the connection until I was doing the research that you were part of that documentary. One of my favorites recently, I'm always fascinated by this topic of how, you know, people get taken and how we, we entrust people and yet we really don't know who they are. It just fascinates me and it seems like it fascinates you as well.
1: It absolutely does. And and really, Henry, I think what what grabs me about it is that it's always the normal people. Yeah. The people that we least expect. And and if you, you know, you've seen all the Queen's horses. And so, you know, that um, Rita Cronwell, who was the uh, comptroller of a small town in Dixon, Illinois, stole $53 million over 20 years. (laughs) And nobody noticed, right? Nobody managed to see that this was going on. But there's a point in the documentary when, Um, you know, there's a reporter who says that one of the town councilmen stated that Rita treated the town's money as if it was her own. And he was Mm -hmm. saying that in admiration, he was saying she did a good job and she took care of the town and she was so prudent with the money. And the irony is that she did treat it as if it was, it was her own, she stole it. (laughs) So um, it's just fascinating to me how these things happen and how frequently they happen right. and how often they happen in small organizations so you think of a municipality you don't think of it as a small organization but that's exactly what most municipalities throughout the country are they're small organizations they're small businesses so that that connection
0: um it really pulled me into the documentary space yeah no doubt and like and like you said it's It has to serve, it should serve as a cautionary tale because we think, oh, that would never happen in my small organization or in my municipality. That would never happen here because we, I know everybody, but this is somebody they knew for 20 plus years that this went on. And that's the, one of the key takeaways is that it's not a person in a trench coat. That's obviously the bad guy or the bad gal. It's people that we know. That's right. It is often the people that we know. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Great, great documentary. If people haven't seen it, I saw it on Netflix. I think it's still uh, on Netflix. Is it not? Or do you know?
1: It's not on Netflix, but okay. it is on Amazon Prime. Amazon, it's on, that's where I saw it. That's where I saw it. Yeah, Prime. it's on YouTube. Um, I think it's
0: $3.99 if you get it on YouTube. Well worth it. Well worth it. Well done. So it's very engaging and it's just a compelling topic. So, but before I get too far ahead of it, uh, although, no, I do want to come back to this one point because you make this point that you touched on in the book which is this, this point of that's it, the people sometimes that we know, and you've touched on it, that we trust that are who we need to make sure we put controls in place because they believe when, when, you, when you analyzed it and you talk about it in the book, the people who perpetrate these crimes, this is just one type of, of situation, right? People that we know or that are in the business they look at it very differently than we, they don't look at it necessarily right. as they were committing a crime, right? So tell me a little bit about that because I, I found that so intriguing. That's right. So human
1: beings have this phenomenal capacity to rationalize, right? To make things seem plausible that really just aren't. And so what happens is you have normal everyday people, you know, the dad who leads the little league or the mom who runs the PTA, know, pillars of the community, neighborhood folks, And they don't look at what they're doing as stealing because they tell themselves a range of things that just don't make sense or simply aren't true. So for example, I'm just borrowing this money. I will pay it back. Or I work so hard and nobody notices what I'm doing. They don't give me any credit for what I'm doing. I'm owed this money. So there are rationalizations that make good people or allow good people to still believe that they're good people while they're doing these things that are crimes, that are wrong, that you know are hurting organizations and individuals. So it's that key capacity to rationalize that allows a normal person to go down this road. In fact, most white collar felons, most individuals who engage in this particular kind of activity, they are first time offenders. They mm. don't have a history of doing this. Right,
0: interesting capacity. Thanks for sharing that. All right, I wanna go back though, and get your story. And we can't get into all the details because you have such a diverse background, but just summarize where, it. Where, where did you start your career and what were some of those initial experiences that you had?
1: Yeah. So Henry, I think I would sum up my career with the, just the word curiosity. So I, I've always had a lot of curiosity about different things. And so I set my career up in a way that I would, it would allow me to pursue gaining different skill sets in different places. So as you've said, I've kind of been all over the place um, with my uh, my background, but I started my career in healthcare consulting at a firm called Arthur Anderson, which some of your, your listeners may <laughs> remember, but um, it went out of business and I think it was 2000 as a result of fraud, the Enron fraud right, right. Um, brought Cold down it. this global It was an outstanding organization, a great place to start your career, and it was felled by a fraud. So I think that kind of set the tone for where I ended up.
0: No doubt. Yeah, I'd I'd forgotten that and I hadn't made that connection, but absolutely. This curiosity, is that always who you've been? Oh, absolutely. It got me in trouble growing up.
1: So, <laughs> so yeah, always been very curious. And, and I also have always been a learner. I love to learn. I love to learn new things and master new skill sets. So, so my career has gone through consulting, investment banking, nonprofit, um, staffing, high tech, healthcare. I've been kind of in, in a lot of
0: different places. And when did you start your first business?
1: I started my first business in 2000, uh, right after I left investment banking, it was the height of the dot-com era. And I launched a dot-com, which actually turned out to be a dot-bomb, it was (laughs) called Landlord Ratings, where you would go online and rate your neighbors, rate your landlord, rate your neighborhood. Now, this doesn't sound far-fetched today because we rate everything, but back then the technology wasn't developed enough to collect the information in a way that was cost-effective. so the business model was we would you know lose money on you know collecting the information, we'd have a negative gross margin and we'd make it up in advertising. That sounds dumb now, but that was the business model. Oh, yeah, back,
0: absolutely.
1: Back at that time, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody remembers buy.com where you could get technology. Uh, I uh, palm pads back then and things like that for less than it cost them to buy it. And they figured they'd make it up on advertising. Well, way back in 2000, there was no advertising on the internet yet, right? It's a huge business model now, but it hadn't matured then. So that was my first company.
0: Did you, did you always have aspirations prior to that to own your own business?
1: Yes. So I remember being in third grade and I had this um, sketch pad and I had sketched out a horizon of like a downtown area, downtown Chicago. And one of the buildings was called Walker Global Enterprises. And I didn't know what this company would do at that time, but I always knew I wanted to own a business.
0: Mm -hmm. What, what is it now anyway, at this point that, that owning, being your own boss, owning a business, what does it do for you?
1: I think it's about self-determination for me. It's about the ability to take an idea from concept to execution. Um, And it's about working my own vision and being able to do it in the way that makes the most sense to me. My parents used to say, I never liked being told what to do. It was mm. kind of a hard thing for me growing up. And it was a hard thing for me in the workplace as well. And so for me, that self-determination to execute the vision that I have in my mind was always the driving force to be a business owner.
0: Yeah. The, the fact that you waited, you had a career and waited to 2000. Would you do that any differently looking back at it now, as far as when you did it? Absolutely
1: not. Um, my dad gave me the best advice which was when I was graduating college, um, my dad was an entrepreneur and um, he said to me, go learn on somebody else's dime. That's the best thing you can do. You need to learn about process. You need to learn about how things get done and why customer acquisition, all of that stuff. Go make your mistakes while somebody else is paying you before you start your business. And that's exactly what I did.
0: Yeah, great advice. And of course you went into consulting where you got exposed to different businesses, Mm -hmm. not just one organization.
1: And that was the goal with consulting. So it was focused in the healthcare industry, but I got to see all different kinds of healthcare practices, uh, large, small hospital systems, medical practices, acquisitions, dispositions. And so it really gave me a broad exposure
0: to the business world. When landlordratings.com failed, did you think, well, that was my one attempt, I'll go back to the corporate world? Or what was your thought back then?
1: I was really kind of bummed when it failed. Uh, you know, nobody sets out planning for failure. And I had you know, invested all of my investment banking bonuses into the business. And so it was, it was not a great time for me. It just so happened that at that time, I had been part of an accelerator to help Uh, technology businesses flourish in the Chicagoland area, and there was another one that was burgeoning that needed an executive director, and uh, it was called the Runner's Club, and it was focused on helping African-American entrepreneurs um, grow their businesses and gain access to capital and customers, and they needed an executive director, and um, I was selected for that role, and it turned out to be a fantastic fit and a great learning
0: experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then uh, that gave you some time to develop what was next as far as business goes, your own business?
1: Actually, it didn't. Um, I mean, I learned a lot by looking at all these different businesses. I consulted with um, more than 200 small businesses, looked at different business models, what worked, what didn't. But from there, I went into private equity and I sat on the investor side of the table. And I worked at a boutique private equity firm, and so I had an opportunity to look at how and why capital gets invested. There's one thing to advise people on: here are the things that you need to do to get capital. It's something different to sit on the other side of the table and see why you wouldn't put capital into a business that you know does everything right, presumably. Right. Um, and so that was a key learning experience and a key opportunity for me. And then I went from there into a health technology startup. I was recruited to run. Um, one, a venture-backed health technology startup. And that brought me back into entrepreneurship, although in a little different of a field in that the idea was someone else's and um, the capital was raised, but I was still put in to be the person who was running it day-to-day. So it got me back into that before I ultimately launched my my own business.
0: I see. Okay, so obviously back when the Enron situation was kind of via that first big monumental exposure to what fraud can do to a large business. But how did you end up then developing this focus and hence what led to writing the book? Where where did this focus come from?
1: So in 2011, I launched an ethics company, ethics and compliance company that focused on helping large corporations improve their communication with their employees around making good decisions. And so I spent a lot of time getting my, my hands dirty, working with corporate risk programs and really looking at the internal controls that these corporations had in place and how they were messaging, do the right thing to their employees. And it dawned on me that even though these were things that I already knew, I wasn't doing them in my own business. And so it started kind of a little nagging thing in me. If I'm not doing it and I know these things, what are small business, what are other small business owners doing? Do they even understand the risks Uh, that they're facing. And so that is really what started me down the road of how do we do this in a way that is helpful to small businesses, knowing firsthand the limitations, both in awareness and knowledge and, and resources, um that large corporations have in space is there a way to do this for small businesses and it actually took me several years before i came to how to do it but the genesis was working with large businesses and understanding what they were doing and then figuring out a path to small businesses
0: wonderful yeah i was making a note there so well said and 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 that's why it's such a good book that's exactly what what i see happens is that it's one of these topics, it's kind of one of those dirty topics we just don't talk about, you know, It's just not. Mm-hmm. Because we don't wanna, because it's scary and it's frightening. I mean, the opening quote and the stats that I'm gonna share here in a moment are scary. And so we tend to have this tendency to bury our head in the sand about it. And that's obviously the wrong answer, but I think that's the, the natural reaction to it, isn't it?
1: That is absolutely the natural reaction. We are all busy. We have more to do than we have time to do it. Running a small business is a juggling act. And so if something isn't right in your face, if it's not presenting an urgent call right at this moment, it goes to the back burner. And that's what I, as a business owner who knew these things was doing, I was putting it on the back burner because the house wasn't burning down as far as I knew. Right. Um, and, and that's the thing, you know, there are things going on that you don't know about. By the time you find out about them, it could be too late.
0: Yeah. And as we mentioned at the outset, we, we don't think it could happen to us. I am mean, just a small business, who's, who's got, who wants to take my money? But in fact, right. let me read some stats that you highlight in the book, quote, 30% of small business failures may be attributable to employee theft, according to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. There's another stat that you shared. 60% of small businesses that experience a cyber attack go out of business within six months. That's according to the National Cybersecurity Alliance report. And then another quote, partial quote that I pulled out of the book, you will experience losses from mitigatable risk or mitigable. I don't know how to say that word. If you don't take steps to prevent it, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. So that all kind of sets the tone for what, you know, diving into this. It's, we just ignore it because certainly we're, we're all, we're also told, I think Ivy, well, don't focus on the negative. Everything's going well. Why are you focusing on the negative? And I can't possibly help it happen to us. I've had Susan running accounting for 20 years. There's no way she would steal from me. You know, whatever the scenarios are, we, we rationalize it. I think that it couldn't happen to us.
1: Absolutely. Right. So, so there's a story that I share in the book about a business owner named Cheryl. Uh, We interviewed Cheryl at Helios Digital for one of the uh, projects that we were working on, but Cheryl ran a very um, successful construction business. And Cheryl says in her interview that she was not a numbers person. She didn't know anything about numbers. She knew, she knew what she needed to know about running her business and she was really good at it. And so she brought on uh, a staff accountant to focus on managing the numbers, and she loved this person. The woman's name was Tammy. She loved Tammy. was outstanding at her job. She was excellent at what she did, and Cheryl didn't have to worry about or think about the accounting side of the house. Well. Tammy worked for Cheryl for eight years. And one day she wasn't able to come into work because of some storm that was going on. Mm. And Cheryl received the mail at her office. And among the things in the mail was a letter from the IRS telling her that they were going to seize her bank accounts because she had not paid her um, employer taxes, her payroll taxes. And of course that set off all kinds of alarm bells. And so for anybody who doesn't know, the IRS doesn't care why you haven't paid those taxes. They don't care what your reason is. They will shut you down. They will take whatever money you have in your bank account to get what they're owed. And so through some investigation and finding out what was going on, Cheryl came to discover that uh, Tammy had not been paying that money to the IRS because Tammy had been stealing it. And by the time she uncovered what Tammy had been doing for eight years, the total cost to her and her business was over a million dollars. Now- How many businesses could sustain a loss like that and keep going? Not many. I
0: can't.
1: Especially when the IRS is involved. Not many. So that's just one example of when your head is in the sand and you're overly trusting of the folks who are running your numbers, that's a situation you can find yourself in. And the um, so the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners talks about the fact that at least 5% of business revenue walks out the front door in the pockets of its employees, (laughs) right? So 5% may not sound like a lot, but it's a lot. And for you as a small business owner, that number is likely to be higher because it's easier to walk out the front door if you lack internal controls. It's easier to walk out the front door with that money uh, in the pockets of people who it doesn't belong to. But even if it's only 5%, that's your money, right? You could do whatever you wanted to with that money, pay yourself more invest it in your business, set it on fire, it's yours. And you should want to protect that.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that story. And what comes to mind there that I touch on often on this show is that you often hear that that position as a business owner, the finances are not my thing. I'm not a numbers person. I let my bookkeeper handle that. But that's fine that you delegate those transactional components, but you cannot abdicate having visibility and, and an audit and control p- process in place to minimize this happening to you. You you cannot abdicate that responsibility as a business owner.
1: That is absolutely correct. I can't tell you how many stories like that I've heard Um, In the classes that I teach at Northwestern, in speeches that I've given, I have people come up to me and say, yes, this happened to me. In random conversations at parties, people ask me what I do. There is infrequently somebody who says, that happened to my cousin's business, that happened to my business, or even that's my biggest fear for my own business. And I just don't know what to do about it. It's okay if you're not, quote, a numbers person. You don't have to be an accountant. You don't have to have a degree in finance, but there are some basic things that you should do. One of the things that I do, I happen to be a numbers person, but I can't control everything. I have multiple businesses. But one of the things I do is I employ questioning, asking questions as a way to alert people that, hey, I'm paying attention to what you're doing. And even if you don't know what the answer is supposed to be, when people think that you are paying attention they behave differently. It's like the video camera in the corner that doesn't actually have any any tape in it, or it's not really plugged in. It doesn't matter. If people think it works, they behave differently. So the question strategy is something that I use frequently
0: in my businesses. Yeah, I love that. You know, you want to create. You don't want to create a temptation or an opportunity by you, the key members on your team who might do this to have an opportunity because they well, she's not paying attention anyway. She she won't notice. Yeah, so, so, and like you said, I'm just going to borrow this money because I'm not really stealing it and I deserve it. I'll put it back in once I get caught up or whatever it is that I need it for personally. Right. She's not watching anyway. She'll never notice it's gone. Yeah.
1: Right, exactly. So one of the things we also do in my business is we interview white collar felons. And um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard from a white collar felon. Well, the boss wasn't paying attention. Clearly he or she wasn't going to miss it. Clearly right. <laughs> he or she has too
0: much money. It's amazing how we make that correlate. Again, it's part of that rationalization. We correlate those two things. She's not watching it, so she must not need it. Right, yeah. exactly. This is Henry Lopez with a brief break from this episode to share a special offer from our new show sponsor, Blue. Sendinblue. Blue provides digital marketing solutions, including email marketing, CRM, and much more. As an all-in-one marketing platform, Sendinblue supports businesses successfully navigating their digital presence by providing the tools to attract, engage, and nurture their customer relationships. Sendinblue helps you reach your customers digitally. You can create personalized emails to automate your customer experiences and workflows to guide your customers to your main message. Thrive digitally with Sendinblue and grow your business as you have the flexibility to grow your list as large as you want with unlimited contacts. Sendinblue's entire pricing structure is based on the number of emails sent, not the number of contacts stored, making it the most cost-effective marketing software for small businesses. Use the promo code HOWABUSINESS to get one free month of the light or premium Sendinblue plans. What more can you ask for? Try out Sendinblue. All right. In the book, uh, there's there are two sections, and then there's there's more detail. We're not going to be able to dive into everything, but you lay out a very simple three-step process for assessing risk, and then we're going to share also some some other resources. Let me just highlight those, and 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 then you can speak to them if you would. First is to identify the risk, then you measure the risk, and then you manage the risk. So. Let's just talk about at a high level, identifying the risk and how you recommend that small business owners begin to do that.
1: So risk identification is a key process for any business owner. And there are a couple of ways that you can start this process. The low tech, just kind of, I've got five minutes is to think about what could go wrong in your business and write that list down. What are all the things that could go wrong in your business? Because the definition of risk is is the opportunity for loss within any specific aspect of your business. What could you lose as it relates to revenue? What could you lose as it relates to your operations, your equipment, your personnel, right? So you've got key employee risk and things of that nature. You can start there. What I recommend though, is that you use a risk assessment, which is a formal tool that will guide you through the process by asking you a series of questions. It'll guide you through the process of uncovering where your areas of vulnerability might be. And there are multiple kinds of risk assessments. There are low-tech paper risk assessments, which you'll just, you know, print off a list of questions and you can go through and answer them. Or there are automated risk assessments on the internet that you can go through. And at the end, they will tell you here are the areas in which you show vulnerability. You might want to focus on those areas. There are also different types of risk assessments. So you'll have a risk assessment for fraud, a risk assessment for cyber, a risk assessment for workplace violence risk assessments for operational failures. So there are different kinds of risk assessments. I recommend at a minimum that you do a risk assessment for fraud and cybersecurity. Those are the top two risks to any small business right now.
0: And one of the ways that I'm going to measure that um, is certainly the financial exposure, but also the reputational exposure and the other exposures you've measured. But but certainly I can look at if I've done nothing in this area of assessing my risks and what I'm going to do about it, that financial exposure seems to me like one way that I might prioritize what to work on first.
1: Absolutely. If, if you are not sort of a solopreneur where you're handling everything yourself, if you have other people who are working in your business, your highest risk is going to be around that financial area in this current moment. Yeah. So you're going to want to take a look at how is how is your money being managed? Who has access to it? And how do they have access to it? And look at the controls that you have in place around it. So that would be a good place to start with risk assessment. Yeah.
0: And then you explain further in the book, the four possible approaches to how do I manage that risk? One is to accept the risk, Two is to control or mitigate the risk. Three is to transfer or share the risk, and four is to avoid that situation altogether or avoid the risk. That's I, right. York, so, so we can take
1: a we can take a step back once we've done the risk assessment. Mm-hmm. We know, okay, I have this particular risk. So let's say that risk is that um, one person handles all of your finances, so you have no segregation of duty, and. You look at that and you say, oh, well, it's my brother. So I'm going to accept that risk, right? I trust my brother. He won't steal from me. I advise don't ever do this
0: with anybody, <laughs> but, but, but- You're but, willing to, you know what it is. You're willing to accept it.
1: Exactly, right? So that is risk acceptance. To control and mitigate the risk, what you're there, what you're doing there is you've identified that you have a risk you're going to you know somebody's going to manage your finances it won't be you somebody's going to manage your finances and so you're going to put controls in place around it internal controls you're going to create some segregation of duties you're going to split up what your brother or whomever else it might be the things that that person is doing across more than one person. In a small company, this can be a little bit of a challenge, but in the book, um, there are some some examples of how you can do it if you have two employees or if you have five employees. So there are different ways to do it, but that's the control slash mitigate the risk component of that.
0: Love it. And then number three, I, I had to really read about it. I hadn't heard it expressed this way, but to transfer or share the risk, explain that.
1: Yeah. So in this particular example that we're using, um, one way to share that risk would be to get fraud insurance. So if something happens, let's say you have segregated duties and you still end up in a situation where you have an employee who steals from you. If you have fraud and crime insurance, then you can recoup your losses there. So you shared the risk. An example of transferring that risk might be to bring in an outside firm that has the ability to spread out that work across different people within their organization. You bring them in to handle that part. I don't recommend that because you still have um, a significant measure of risk there because somebody else is still doing it. But that's one example where you could say, well, I don't want to handle this at all. I'll let somebody else worry about the whole you know, kid and caboodle.
0: Sure. Or, or a portion of it, so that I have the, the segregation of duties that way, or this CPA firm is showing me and telling me, this is how we segregate uh, the, the duties internally, and I'm mm-hmm. going to accept that as, as yep. that risk, yeah. The exactly. insurance, in my experience, this is something that can be part of my overall liability policy, my commercial liability policy, although often what I'm seeing nowadays is you have to get additional riders yes. for some of these coverages, right? That's exactly
1: right. So it is typically offered under your commercial liability insurance, but you do have to, in many cases, you have to elect it, and then you have to provide some some um, attestation that you've put in reasonable controls in order to prevent this from happening. I see. I
0: see. Okay. They're not just going to, they they are going to probably not cover it if it's because of your lack of having any controls over this potential fraud issue.
1: Absolutely. They yeah. will
0: not cover it then. Yeah. Interesting. That's a great, great point. Um, Okay, in the book of course then you cover and as you said we're, we're going to focus on these two areas but you also cover what we're talking about financial risk, cybersecurity risk, but you also cover workplace violence as a risk, reputational risk, so and these can, that I think is related to all of them or individually and compliance risk, but we're focusing on financial and cybersecurity just to continue exploring financial risk. This was another good quote from the book. Quote, according to the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, small business organizations, so those with typically less than 100 employees, are far more likely than larger organizations to become victims of occupational fraud. That term occupational fraud, if I understood it correctly, is fraud committed by somebody who works for us or an association with us, right?
1: Yes. So occupational fraud is also sometimes known as friendly
0: fraud. Uh, because it's the people that we trust who
1: commit the fraud, but yes.
0: Yeah, and so we've been talking about this, but it's so, it's so important to, to, to talk about a little bit more. What are some of those other, you shared a, a couple of examples, what are other, other, some of those schemes that you've seen or that are common related to occupational or friendly fraud that we should start to become aware of? One of the biggest ones is payroll schemes. So that is
1: when an individual who has access to payroll does things like they increase their own salary. Uh, It hasn't been agreed to by you. They increase their own salary. They give themselves bonuses. They put people on the payroll who don't exist. Now, owning a staffing company, this is one of the things that I always had to look out for because sure. people come in and out, right? Been and, you know, very we, easy.
0: Yeah, very easy scenario. Absolutely.
1: Right. And so I had to put in, an internal control around this. And I also use my questioning process. So I did something that I call spot audits, which basically I'd pick up a list of employees and I'd go to the folks who handle payroll and I'd say, I want all the documentation on this person, including a copy of the, their identification. Right. So I would go and check to make sure randomly, not all 200, 300 employees, but I would pick people off the list. Um, But payroll schemes are are a really big one. Expense reimbursement schemes are also a big one. Uh, I had a situation where I was preparing for a trade show and i was going to a company that set up uh, that created the booths that you use at the trade shows and i was talking to the salesperson about what we needed and so he you know he wanted to get familiar with my business what do you do and i told him and he got quiet and he said you know i charge gas Uh, for miles I didn't drive, and sometimes for meals that I didn't take when I'm on the road. Hmm. I don't really feel like that's wrong because being on the road is really hard. Is that wrong? (laughs) I'm looking at him like, yes. It goes right back to the
0: rationalization point, right? In his (laughs) mind, he's working hard. He's taking time away from his family. So he deserves that compensation, quote unquote. Absolutely,
1: he deserved it, and he didn't. It never across. It never occurred to him that it was wrong until he had this conversation with me.
0: Now, an organization um, that lets that slide signals to him, well, nobody's paying attention. So. Exactly,
1: nobody's paying attention. I'll give you just another quick example of that, but this time it's a big company. Um, I was having a conversation with one of our clients, uh, as a large organization several, like tens of thousands of employees around the world. And they changed their reimbursement policy around taxis. So previously it had been that you turn in the receipts, you get reimbursement. They changed it to um, taxis had to be paid for using your company credit card. And so I'm talking to this this VP at the company and she says, you know, we changed this policy a couple months ago and our taxi um, expense has dropped like 60%. We're so happy. And we, But we kind of think it's because people find it's just too difficult to use their company credit card to pay for a taxi. And I kind of cocked my head like, you think that's why? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. You think
1: that's what happens?
0: Like, not no. nowadays anyway. Maybe 20 years ago or 10 years ago when you had to ask a cab driver, does he take a credit card? But that's not the right. case anymore. Yeah,
1: Right. No, it was simply they couldn't forge these receipts anymore. Yeah. That's yeah. why it dropped. So even at big companies, you get some kind of head-scratching uh, thoughts on on these things. But expense reimbursement for small business, it, it's really something that can hit you very hard. Um, and so it's something to watch carefully. Another kind of scheme that I see a lot is time theft, which, which people don't think much about at all. But you're paying people for work that they aren't doing. So falsified time sheets or um, people who are on salary who are using that time to do personal business that's a huge drain on your cash flow as a business owner, because you're paying for work that's not getting done. So those are a few of the schemes. There are many, but those are a few.
0: Yeah, and of course the the book highlights and explains a lot more of them. One last point on the segregation of duties, because we've mentioned that a couple of times. One of the ways that I've heard that expressed well for small business owners is that you want at least two people in the flow of money. And that's what you've been talking about here as it relates to me as a small business owner when it relates to money outflow, two people should be involved in that process one way or another, right?
1: That's absolutely right. And you don't want the same people involved in both the inflow and the outflow.
0: Good point. Good point. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to cybersecurity. Uh, Another big exposure quote from the book, 61% of small and medium-sized businesses reported at least one cyber attack during the previous year, end quote. Why are we so vulnerable as small business owners?
1: Yeah. So I looked at that quote from a Verizon study. It kind of surprised me. But then I thought about my own experience as a business owner. And it sort of affirmed what I had been seeing the last couple of years. The reason small business owners are so vulnerable is because small business owners are soft targets. We don't think that a hacker would want to go after us. Why would a hacker want what I have? And there are two answers to that. The first is that because you're very easy to get, so it's not much effort on the hacker's part to get you. But the second part of that answer is because small businesses Often have access to something they don't realize, which is they might have a way into a larger business. Mm. So when you think about, you know, several years ago, I think it was maybe five or six years ago, Target was hacked and something like 170 million credit card numbers and email addresses were stolen. And when the postmortem was complete, it came to light that the way Target was hacked. Was that one of their vendors, a small HVAC company that mm-hmm. services th- their equipment in a couple of their stores in the Northeast, that company had been hacked. Amazing. And the hackers had gained access to Target's network because that company electronically had to upload its bills into Target's network. So they had access to Target's network. And so the hacker jumped from their system into Target's system and hit Pater. Right. And so um, you'll lose a big customer that way. I promise you. Oh, sure. That it'll be over for you. But in addition to that, just in your own business, if you are a soft target, whatever you do have uh, is at risk.
0: Yeah. Well said. A couple of thoughts or wanted to share a couple of things that we had done. This is a while back a business that I owned. It was a sweet salon business, and my wife ran the back office. One thing we did is we had two separate computers, the computer that she did any kind of banking and QuickBooks on, she did not check email on that computer. She had a separate computer for that. So no, no as far as we were able to control, no connectivity from out, outside. And then the other thing that we did that worked pretty well, when we would send each other emails, you know, look at this or take a look at this link, we had a, a shared code internally, I uh, forget what it was. So something simple, right? It's not not a password, just a code. That if I saw that code in the email, it authenticated that it really was from from Henry. So it was just a simple low tech process that we implemented, so that if I sent you an email saying anything about an attachment at opening, and you didn't see that code in there in the email body, then it maybe wasn't from me. So those are a couple of simple ideas of how we did it to segregate things into try to mitigate that cyber, cyber exposure.
1: Yeah. And hackers have gotten so much more sophisticated these oh, days. Yeah. And you would be amazed at how well they can mimic conversations. Right. And it becomes difficult. And is to... that because
0: they'll study it for a while though? Yes. They'll get some traffic of your emails and learn the tone and the way that you phrase things and they'll copy and mimic that.
1: Yes. This is that that's what happened in my company. Like we had that very situation happen in my company. Um, and so it, it's a very common occurrence. And you know what, I, what small business owners need to start thinking about is good cyber hygiene, right? There are simply a set of practices that we should all be engaging in both professionally and personally to help to protect us better from cyber attacks. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've heard and your, your listeners are familiar with the fact that, you know, especially during, the, during this time of war, the concern for cyber attacks has skyrocketed. And small businesses were hit during one of the last major um, waves, maybe six months ago. Um, they were directly targeted in cyber attacks. And I've even seen it on our own sites. You know, we've got some suspicious stuff happening, but we're able to, we see it because we have a a cybersecurity firm that does our work for us. And so they see what's going on. So there's a lot of activity right now.
0: What are a couple of examples that we haven't talked about as it relates to cyber hygiene, some practices that, that you recommend?
1: First and foremost, use a VPN, a virtual private network you want to disguise and encrypt the traffic that you're sending and receiving over whatever internet connection you have. The advice used to be, you know, always use it when you're on a public Wi-Fi connection, which absolutely don't ever get on a public Wi-Fi connection if you don't have a VPN, but you should be using it at home and at work as well, because your networks are vulnerable to attack. So that's one key cybersecurity principle. The other thing is yourself and your employees take a cybersecurity training, invest the 30 to 90 minutes, depending on which course you choose, invest that time into understanding what your risks might look like and how you can mitigate those risks. It's so, so very important. Um, And I'll share with you, a hack that experienced uh, that we experienced at one of my companies, a staffing company, what happened, how it happened and what the result was. So just really simply, um, I typically have a practice of before anybody touches my network, any new employee gets network credentials, they have to take cybersecurity training. Well, we were in a busy period and I hired an executive and didn't put him through um, cybersecurity training, figured we would get to it within a week or two of him starting, got him up and going. Well, he had access to our network because he was an executive and, um, he went to Starbucks and, um, was on their private, on their public network without a VPN and got hacked and the hacker got into our network as a result of getting into his computer and then just sat Uh, based on what we could tell, sat in our system for a couple weeks monitoring email traffic to figure out who had access to finances within the staffing company. They identified me and they, they identified the staff accountant, and they took over our email accounts. And what that meant was they gave themselves read and write privileges from my email, and they identified a customer target and then directed all email from that customer target into my RSS folder, You probably don't even know what that is, but it's a folder we don't use. Nobody uses. It's there in Microsoft Outlook, but nobody uses it. So all of these emails were going in automatically marked as red. So no notifications were popping up into that RSS folder. Well, the customer had very bad cyber hygiene practices and sent an email asking for um, wire instructions to send a payment. And the hacker responded with the hackers bank account, mimicking perfectly the tone of Uh, my staff account, the exclamation points in the right places. Like it was all, all perfect. And the client wired a $28,000 payment to the hacker's account. And I discovered this within minutes of it happening and, um, was able to get to the client and tell them, you know, you guys should do something, call your bank. Uh, they didn't call their bank for whatever reason.
0: They're probably but embarrassed of en- nothing else.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it ended up leading to a very strained relationship uh, between my company and the customer. And we ended up losing the customer. was about right. $250,000 business, a uh, piece of business for us that we ended up losing as a result of this one incident. Amazing. So, so a simple
0: things- policy there, like uh, I just recently went through this with a client, um, a phone call confirmation might have avoided that right
1: it absolutely would have avoided it and you know to all your listeners don't ever send money on the basis of an email that never. you've received never. never do that always do a voice confirmation with someone that you know within the organization if you are expected and to, then, and send that money. you
0: call? Not, not. oh, call this number. In other words, absolutely. To that that you've well. dialed
1: okay. direct from you've a number that, that number you before. have. Yeah, that yes. you have
0: that you have previously dialed to get through to that person.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So that, that's a basic cyber hygiene practice, right? Don't ever send money on that basis. Um, but you know, there are so many things that went wrong, and I talk about this in the book. There are so many risks that flared up in that particular situation that were really the basis of, you know, bad cyber hygiene, bad internal controls, and, and other things that were at work in that situation.
0: Where, what's a good resource to go to for this cybersecurity training for staff?
1: So we use the Center for Information Security Um, they have training on their website, which is, I want to say it's $14 and 95 cents for a two hour training as per employee. And it's pretty long. I recommend that everybody take the two hour training initially. And then every year there's a much shorter annual refresher that they have, which I think is like 30 minutes or so. But that first training of two hours, I think is, is hugely important.
0: Perfect. Perfect. All right. We'll start to wrap it up. I usually ask, where do I get, I've done nothing as a business owner in this area of risk management. Where do I start? But I think the answer is to go to your website and begin taking these risk assessments as a good starting point. Is that fair? That's absolutely correct.
1: Yes. And the website is
0: that I should go to?
1: It's 12minute.com. So it's 12 spelled out hyphen minute.com.
0: And I've obviously spent a lot of time there. The, I can find those assessments there, those online assessments there that I can start taking to begin this first step of identifying my exposures, my risks. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the book. Obviously, we want to encourage you people to 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 read the book, to get the book. Where where is the best place or multiple places to go to find the book?
1: The book is currently available on Amazon as either an ebook or a printed paperback.
0: And again, the title of the book is 12-Minute Risk Management, Strategies and Tools Small Business Owners Need Right Now to Successfully Navigate Today's Business World by Ivy Walker. Great book. I love the, we didn't get to talk about it much, but the structure, the whole 12-minute thing is at the end of every chapter, you've got a 12-minute kind of exercise or call to action. And what I like about that is, as we've touched on, this can be an, well, this is an overwhelming subject. And so, what I like about it is what I don't want people to do, and you're recommending as well, is don't, don't go, to go try to tackle this all at once, especially if you've got nothing. Don't use that, though, conversely, as an experience to rebury your head in the sand and say, you know what, I don't even want to deal with it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I use the analogy of eating an elephant. You know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And I know when things feel overwhelming. We tend to just ignore it. And as a business owner, as, as we said earlier, our plates are full. And so what I did in this book was I broke down. A 12 minute action plan for each of the chapters that will at least get you started and put something in place to help you to, to manage and navigate these risks. I also put chapter reading times in the book, because I I don't want you to feel like, like Oh, I gotta go read another whole book. Well, You know, the book is a three-hour read, right? I I kept it pretty concise. I tried to only tell you what you need to know because I know you don't have a whole lot of time, but I went a step further to say, okay, it'll take you 20 minutes to read this chapter. So, you know, read it on your lunch or read it while you're waiting for something else that's about to happen. So you can break it into steps even in getting through the book.
0: Yeah, and it becomes a reference guide. And so I love that structure of it as well. Right, you mentioned the Center for Information Security as a place to go for security training. I know there's another resource that you want to recommend to us as well.
1: Yes. When it comes to cybersecurity, I recommend that all small business owners take a look at the Global Cybersecurity Alliance website, GCA. There are so many free tools available that can help you with your business. In fact, one of the ones that I recommend that you do first is to scan your website. Scan your business's website to see if you have malicious uh, malware operating there or other vulnerabilities that could jeopardize your business.
0: Yeah, Uh, there's an example of that a couple of years ago, my website got attacked. It took me a while to discover it. I really only discovered it because I was looking at my analytics and I was seeing these links that didn't make any sense. So somebody had had hacked into my website solely for the purpose of embedding in different places, links to other sites, right? having mm-hmm. nothing to do with my business. That, so seemingly not very malicious, but think about uh, you're talking about, the reputation of my site. And of course they were piggybacking and leveraging my SEO to to their benefit. Um, That's right. And so I upgraded uh, on my, my provider provides a security platform that I upgraded to because, because that was the only way to start, keep this from happening. It had happened to me a couple of times already.
1: That's exactly right. That's a perfect example, Henry. You don't think about it but it could really cause issues with Google, your analytics, um, your site will get downgraded and search rankings. It, right. it's, a, it's a huge issue.
0: Huge issue. All right. Let's summarize it. What, what's one thing, Ivy, you want us to take away from this conversation that we've had about risk management for small business owners?
1: The most important thing is do something. Do something and do it now. It doesn't have to be the whole kid and caboodle but take a step in the direction of protecting your most valuable investment.
0: Couldn't agree with you more. Well said. Tell us again where you want us to go online to learn more. To learn more, you can go to
1: 12minute.com. It's 12 spelled out, dash minute.com.
0: Ivy, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for indulging all of my questions. Thanks for having shared the book so that I could read it. A lot of value there. Tremendous book. Thanks for being with me today. Henry, thank you
1: so much for having me on your show.
0: This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me on this episode of The Howa Business. My guest today, again, was Ivy Walker. I release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at my website, thehowabusiness.com.